0: hello there and welcome to down to sleep this is my podcast of softly spoken audiobooks and bedtime stories to help you get a good night's rest please do leave a positive review a thumbs up or five stars on whatever app you're listening on if you would prefer to listen on youtube then head over to youtube.com There down to sleep there is also a patreon where you can support me and the podcast and get two readings every week Members of the Patreon hear everything first and get to vote on what books I read next and prioritize. So come and join me at patreon.com slash down to sleep. You can find links to those and my Instagram in the info for this episode. Let's go ahead and take a nice deep breath. Let's tuck you in and let's get down to sleep. Dracula chapter seven cutting from the Daily Graph, 8th of August, pasted into Mina Murray's journal. From a correspondent. One of the greatest and suddenest storms on record has just been experienced here, with results both strange and unique. The weather has been somewhat sultry, but not to any degree uncommon in the month of August. Saturday evening, was as fine as was ever known, and the great body of holidaymakers laid out yesterday for visits to Mulgrave Woods, Robin Hood's Bay, Rig Mill, Runswick, Stathes, and the various trips in the neighbourhood of Whitby. The steamers, Emma and Scarborough, made trips up and down the coast, and there was an unusual amount of tripping both to and from Whitby. The day was unusually fine till the afternoon. When some of the gossips who frequent the East Cliff Churchyard, and from that commanding eminence watch the wide sweep of sea visible to the north and east, called attention to a sudden show of mare's tails high in the sky to the northwest. The wind was then blowing from the southwest in the mild degree, which in barometrical language is ranked number two light breeze. The Coast Guard on duty at once made report, and one old fisherman, who for more than half a century has kept watch on weather signs from East Cliff, foretold in an emphatic manner the coming of a sudden storm. The approach of a sunset was so very beautiful, so grand in its masses of splendidly coloured clouds, that there was quite an assemblage on the walk along the cliff in the old churchyard, to enjoy the beauty, before the sun dipped below the black mass of kettleness, standing boldly athwart the western sky. Its downward way was marked by a myriad of clouds of every sunset colour. Flame, purple, pink, green, violet, and all the tints of gold with here and there masses not large, but of seemingly absolute blackness, in all sorts of shapes as well, outlined as colossal silhouettes. The experience was not lost on the painters, and doubtless some of the sketches of the prelude to the Great Storm will grace the RA and our walls in May next. More than one captain made up his mind then and there that his cobble, or his mule as they termed the different classes of boats, would remain in the harbour till the storm had passed. The wind fell away entirely during the evening, and at midnight there was a dead calm, a sultry heat, and that prevailing intensity which, on the approach of thunder, affects persons of a sensitive nature. There were but a few lights in sight at sea, for even the coasting steamers, which usually hug the shore so closely, kept well to seaward. And but a few fishing boats were in sight. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner, with all sails set, seemingly going westwards. The foolhardiness or ignorance of her officers was a prolific theme for comment, while she remained in sight. Efforts were made to signal her to reduce sail in face of her danger. Before the night shut down, she was seen with sails idly flapping as she gently rolled on the undulating swell of the sea. Shortly before ten o'clock, the stillness of the air grew quite oppressive. The silence was so marked that the bleating of a sheep inland or the barking of a dog in the town was distinctly heard. The band on the pier, with its lively French air, was like a discord in the great harmony of nature's silence. A little after midnight came a strange sound from over the sea, and high overhead the air began to carry a strange, faint, hollow booming. Then, without warning, the tempest broke with a rapidity which at the time seemed incredible, and even afterwards is impossible to realise. The whole aspect of nature at once became convulsed. The waves rose in growing fury, each overtopping its fellow till in a very few minutes the lately glassy sea was like a roaring and devouring monster. White crested waves beat madly on the level sands and rushed up to the shelving cliffs. Others broke over the piers, and with their spume swept the lanthorns of the lighthouses which rise from the end of either pier of Whitby Harbour. The wind roared like thunder, and blew with such force that it was with difficulty that even strong men kept their feet or clung with grim clasp to the iron stanchions. It was found necessary to clear the entire piers from the mass of onlookers, or else the fatalities of the night would have been increased manifold. To add to the difficulties and dangers of the time, masses of sea fog came drifting inland, white, wet clouds which swept by in a ghostly fashion. So dank and damp and cold that it needed but little effort of imagination to think that the spirits of those lost at sea were touching their living brethren with the clammy hands of death, and many a one shuddered as the wreaths of sea mist swept by. At times the mist cleared, and the sea for some distance could be seen in the glare of the lightning, which now came thick and fast, followed by such sudden peals of thunder that the whole sky overhead seemed trembling under the shock of the footsteps of the storm. Some of the scenes thus revealed were of immeasurable grandeur and of absorbing interest. The sea, running mountains high through skywards with each wave mighty masses of white foam, which the tempest seemed to snatch at and whirl away into space. Here and there, a fishing boat with a rag of sail running madly for shelter before the blast. Now and again, the white wings of a storm-tossed seabird. On the summit of the east cliff, the new searchlight was ready for experiment, but had not yet been tried. The officers in charge of it got it into working order, and in the pauses of the inrushing mist swept with it the surface of the sea. Once or twice its service was most effective, as when a fishing boat with gunwale underwater rushed into the harbour, able by the guidance of the sheltering light to avoid the danger of dashing against the piers. As each boat achieved the safety of the port, there was a shout of joy from the mass of people on shore, a shout which for a moment seemed to cleave the gale, and was then swept away. In its rush. Before long, the searchlight discovered some distance away a schooner with all sails set, apparently the same vessel which had been noticed earlier in the evening. The wind had by this time backed to the east, and there was a shudder amongst the watchers on the cliff as they realized the terrible danger in which she now was. Between her and the port, lay the great flat reef on which so many good ships have from time to time suffered, and with the wind blowing from its present quarter, it would be quite impossible that she should fetch the entrance of the harbour. It was now nearly the hour of high tide, but the waves were so great that in their troughs the shallows of the shore were almost visible and the schooner with all sails set, was rushing with such speed that, in the words of one old sort, she must fetch up somewhere if it was only in hell. Then came another rush of sea-fog greater than any hitherto, a mass of dank mist which seemed to close on all things like a grey pall, and left available to men only the organ of hearing for the roar of the tempest and the crash of the thunder and the booming of the mighty billows came through the damp oblivion even louder than before. The rays of the searchlight were kept fixed on the harbour mouth across East Pier, where the shock was expected and men waited breathless. The wind suddenly shifted to the northeast and the remnant of the sea fog melted in the blast, and then... Mirabil Dictu, between the piers, leaping from wave to wave as it rushed at headlong speed, swept the strange schooner before the blast, with all sails set and gained the safety of the harbour. The searchlight followed her, and a shudder ran through all who saw her, for lashed to the helm was a corpse with a drooping head which swung horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. No other form could be seen on deck at all. A great awe came on all as they realized that the ship, as if by a miracle, had found the harbor unsteered, save by the hand of a dead man. However, all took place more quickly than it takes to write these words, the schooner paused not, but rushing across the harbour, pitched herself on that accumulation of sand and gravel washed by many tides and many storms into the southeast corner of the pier, jutting under East Cliff. There was, of course, a considerable concussion as the vessel drove up on the sand heap. Every spar, rope, and stay was strained, and some of the top hammer came crashing down. But strangest of all, the very instant the shore was touched, an immense dog sprang up on deck from below as if shot up by the concussion. Running forward jumped from the bow onto the sand, making straight for the steep cliffs where the churchyard hangs over the laneway to East Pier so steeply that some of the flat tombstones, or through stones as they call them in the Whitby vernacular, actually project over where the sustaining cliff has fallen away. It disappeared into the darkness, which seemed intensified just beyond the focus of the searchlight. It so happened that there was no one at the moment on Tate Hill Pier, as all those whose houses are in close proximity were either in bed or on the heights above. Thus, the Coast Guard on duty on the eastern side of the harbour at once ran down to the little pier, was the first to climb on board. The men working the searchlight after scouring the entrance of the harbour without seeing anything turned the light on the derelict and kept it there. The coast guard ran aft and when he came beside the wheel bent over to examine it and recoiled at once as though under some sudden emotion. This seemed to pique general curiosity, and quite a number of people began to run. It's a good way round from the west cliff by the drawbridge to Tate Hill Pier, but your correspondent's a fairly good runner, and came well ahead of the crowd. When I arrived, I found already assembled on the pier a crowd, whom the coast guard and police refused to allow to come on board. By the courtesy of the chief boatman, I was as your correspondent— permitted to climb on deck, and was one of a small group who saw the dead seaman whilst actually lashed to the wheel. It was no wonder that the Coast Guard was surprised or even awed, for not often can such a sight have been seen. The man was simply fastened by his hands, tied one over the other to the spoke of the wheel. Between the inner hand and the wood was a crucifix the set of beads on which it was fastened around both wrist and wheel, all kept fast by binding cords. The poor fellow may have been seated at one time, but the flapping and buffeting of the sails had worked through the rudder of the wheel and dragged him to and fro. The cords with which he was tied had cut the flesh to the bone. Accurate note was made of the state of things, and a doctor, Surgeon J.M. Caffin, of 33 East Elliot Place, who came immediately after me, declared after making examination that the man must have been dead for quite two days. In his pocket was a bottle, carefully corked, empty save for a little roll of paper, which proved to be the addendum to the log. The Coast Guard said the man must have tied his own hands, fastening the knots with his teeth. The fact that a Coast Guard was first on board may save some complications later on in Admiralty Court, for Coast Guards cannot claim the salvage which is the right of the first civilian on entering a derelict. Already, however, the legal tongues are wagging, and one law student is loudly asserting that the rights of the owner are already completely sacrificed his property being held in contravention of the statutes of Mortmain, since the tiller as emblemship, if not proof of a delegated possession, is held in a dead hand. It's needless to say that the dead steersman has been reverently removed from the place where he held his honourable watch, a steadfastness as noble as that of the young Casabianca, placed into the mortuary to await inquest. Already the sudden storm is passing, Its fierceness is abating, crowds are scattering homeward, the sky is beginning to redden over the Yorkshire walls. I shall send in time for your next issue, further details of the derelict ship which found her way so miraculously into harbour in the storm. 9th of August. The sequel to the strange arrival of the derelict in the storm last night is almost more startling than the thing itself. It turns out that the schooner is a Russian from Varna and is called the Demeter. She is almost entirely in ballast of silver sand, with only a small amount of cargo, a number of great wooden boxes filled with mould. This cargo was consigned to a Whitby solicitor, Mr. S. F. Billington, of Seven, the Crescent, who this morning went aboard and formally took possession of the goods consigned to him. The Russian consul, too, acting for the charter party, took formal possession of the ship, paying all harbour dues. Nothing is talked about here today except the strange coincidence. The officials of the Board of Trade have been most exacting in seeing that every compliance has been made with existing regulations. As the matter is to be a nine days wonder, they are evidently determined that there shall be no cause of after-complaint. A good deal of interest was abroad concerning the dog, which landed when the ship struck. More than a few members of the SPCA, which is very strong in Whitby, have tried to befriend the animal. To the general disappointment, however, it was not to be found it seems to have disappeared entirely from the town it may be that it was frightened and made its way on to the moors where it is still hiding in terror there are some who look with dread on such a possibility lest later it should become itself a danger it is evidently a fierce brute Early this morning, a large dog, a half-bred Mastiff belonging to a coal merchant, was found dead in the roadway opposite its master's yard. It had been fighting, and manifestly had had a savage opponent. Its throat was torn away, and its belly was slit open, as if with a savage claw. Later, by the kindness of the Board of Trade Inspector, I have been permitted to look over the logbook of the Demeter, which was in order up to within three days, but contained nothing of special interest except as to facts of missing men. The greatest interest, however, is with regard to the paper found in the bottle, which was today produced at the inquest, and a more strange narrative than the two between them unfolded has not been my lot to come across. There is no motive for concealment. I am permitted to use them and accordingly send you a rescript, simply omitting technical details of seamanship and supercargo. It almost seems as though the captain had been seized with some kind of mania before he got into the blue water, and this had developed persistently throughout the voyage. Of course, my statement must be taken cum grano since I am writing from the dictation of a clerk of the Russian Consul, who kindly translated for me, time being short. Log of the Demeter Varna to Whitby Written 18th of July Things so strange happening that I shall keep accurate note henceforth till we land. On 6th July, we finish taking in cargo, silver sand, and boxes of earth. At noon, set sail. East wind, fresh. Crew, five hands, two mates, cook and myself, captain. On 11 July, at dawn, entered Bosphorus, boarded by Turkish customs officers. Bakshish, all correct, underway at 4 p.m. On 12 July, through Dardanelles, more customs officers and flagboat of guarding squadron. Back sheesh again. Work of officers thorough but quick. Want us off soon. On 13th of July, past Cape Matapan. Crew dissatisfied about something. Seemed scared but would not speak out. On 14th of July, somewhat anxious about crew. Men, all steady fellows who sailed with me before mate could not make out what was wrong. They only told him there was something and crossed themselves. Mate lost temper with one of them that day and struck him. They expected fierce quarrel, but all was quiet. On 16th of July, mate reported in the morning that one of crew, Petrovsky, was missing. Could not account for it. Men more downcast than ever. All said, they expected something of the kind, but would not say more than there was something aboard. Mate, getting very impatient with them, feared some trouble ahead. 17th of July. Yesterday, one of the men, Aldgren, came to my cabin, and in an awe-struck way confided to me that he thought there was a strange man aboard the ship. He said that in his watch he had been sheltering behind the deckhouse, as there was a rainstorm, when he saw a tall, thin man, who was not like any of the crew, and came up the companionway to go along the deck forward and then disappear. He followed cautiously, but when he got to the bows, found no one. The hatchways were all closed. He was in a panic of superstitious fear, and I am afraid the panic may spread. To allay it, I shall today search the entire ship carefully from stem to stern. Later in the day, I got together the whole crew and told them, as they evidently thought there was someone in the ship that we should search from stem to stern. First mate, angry, said it was folly, and to yield to such foolish ideas would demoralize the men. Said he would engage to keep them out of trouble with a hand spike. I let him take the helm. While the rest began thorough search, all keeping abreast with lanterns, we left no corner unsearched. There were only the big wooden boxes. There were no odd corners where a man could hide. Men much relieved when search over, went back to work cheerfully. First mate scowled but said nothing. 22nd of July. Rough weather last three days, all hands busy with sails no time to be frightened. Men seem to have forgotten their dread, mate cheerful again, and all on good terms. Praised men for work in bad weather. Past Gibraltar, out through the Straits, all well. 24th of July. There seems some doom over this ship, already a hand short and entering on the Bay of Biscay with wild weather ahead. And yet last night another man lost, disappeared like the first he came off his watch and was not seen again men all in a panic of fear sent around robin asking to have double watch as they fear to be alone mate angry fear there will be some trouble as either he or the men will do some violence 28th of july four days in hell knocking about in a sort of maelstrom the wind of a tempest no sleep for anyone men all worn out hardly know how to set a watch since no one fit to go on. Second mate volunteered to steer and watch and let men snatch a few hours sleep. Wind abating. Seas terrific, but feel them less. Ship is steadier. 29th of July. Another tragedy. Had single watch tonight as crew too tired to double. When morning watch came on deck, could find no one except the steersman raised outcry and all came on deck thorough search but no one found now without second mate crew in panic mate and i agreed to go armed henceforth and wait for any signs of cause 30th of july last night rejoiced we are nearing england weather fine all sails set retired worn out slept soundly awaked by mate telling me that both men of watch and steersman missing. Only self and mate and two hands left to work ship. First of August. Two days of fog. Not a sail sighted. Had hoped when in the English Channel to be able to signal for help to get in somewhere. Not having power to work sails, have to run before wind. Dare not lower as could not raise them again. We seem to be drifting to some terrible doom. Mate now more demoralized than either of men. His stronger nature seems to have worked inwardly against himself. Men are beyond fear. Working stolidly and patiently with minds made up to worst. They are Russian. He Romanian. 2nd of August, midnight. Woke up from a few minutes sleep by hearing a cry seemingly outside my port could see nothing in fog rushed on deck ran against mate tells me he heard cry and ran but no sign of man on watch one more gone lord help us mate says we must be past the straits of Dover as in a moment of fog lifting he saw the north foreland just as he heard the man cry out if so we are now off in the north sea and only God can guide us in the fog God seems to have deserted us 3rd of August, at midnight, I went to relieve the man at the wheel, and when I got to it I found no one there. The wind was steady, and as we ran before, there was no yawing. I dared not leave it, so I shouted for the mate. After a few seconds he rushed up on deck in his flannels. He looked wild-eyed and haggard. I greatly fear his reason has given way. He came close to me and whispered hoarsely with his mouth to my ear as though fearing the very air might hear. It is here. I know it now. On the watch last night, I saw it. Like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the boughs, looking out. I crept behind it and gave it my knife. But the knife went through it, empty as the air. And as he spoke, he took his knife and drove it savagely into space. He went on. But it is here, and I'll find it. It is in the hold, perhaps in one of those boxes. I'll unscrew them one by one. You work the helm and with a warning look and his finger on his lip he went below there was a springing up a choppy wind and I could not leave the helm I saw him come out on deck again with a tool chest and a lantern and go down the forward hatchway he's mad stark raving mad and it's no use my trying to stop him he can't hurt those big boxes they're invoiced as clay to pull them apart is as harmless as a thing as he can do So here I stay, and mind the helm, and write these notes. I can only trust in God, and wait till the fog clears. Then, if I can't steer to any harbour with the wind that is, I shall cut down sails and lie by, and signal for help. It is nearly all over now. Just as I was beginning to hope that the mate would come out calmer, I heard him knocking away at something in the hold, "'and work is good for him.' "'There came up the hatchway a sudden, startled scream. "'It made my blood run cold.' "'And up on the deck he came as if shot from a gun, "'a raging madman with his eyes rolling and his face convulsed with fear. "'Save me, save me,' he cried. "'He looked around on the blanket of fog, his horror turned to despair, "'and in a steady voice he said, "'You had better come too, Captain.' Before it is too late, he is there. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him, and it is all that is left. Before I could say a word or move forward to seize him, he sprang on the bulwark and deliberately threw himself into the sea. I suppose I know the secret too now. It was this madman who had got rid of the men one by one, and now he has followed them himself. God help me. How am I to account for all of these horrors when I get to port? When I get to port? Will that ever be? Fourth of August. Still fog, which the sunrise cannot pierce. I know there is sunrise because I am a sailor. Why else I know not? I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm. So here all night I stayed. And in the dimness of the night... I saw it. Him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a man, to die like a sailor in blue water. No man can object. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. But I shall baffle this fiend or monster, for I shall tie my hands to the wheels when my strength begins to fail. Along with them I shall tie that which he, it dare not touch and then come good wind or foul I shall save my soul my honor as a captain I am growing weaker and the night is coming on if he can look me in the face again I may not have time to act if we are wrecked mayhap this bottle may be found and those who find it may understand if not then all men shall know that I have been true to my trust. God and the Blessed Virgin and the Saints help a poor, ignorant soul trying to do his duty. Of course, the verdict was an open one. There is no evidence to adduce, and whether or not the man himself committed the murders, there is now none to say. The folk here hold almost universally that the Captain is simply a hero. He is to be given a public funeral. Already it is arranged that his body is to be taken with a train of boats up the Esk for a piece, and then brought back to Tate Hill Pier, up the abbey steps. He is to be buried in the churchyard on the cliff. The owners of more than a hundred boats have already given in their names as wishing to follow him to the grave. No trace has been found of the great dog, at which there is much mourning, for with public opinion in its present state, he would, I believe, be adopted by the town. Tomorrow we will see the funeral, and so will end this, one more mystery of the sea. Mina Murray's Journal, 8th of August. Lucy was very restless all night, and I too could not sleep. The storm was fearful, and as it boomed loudly among the chimney pots, it made me shudder. When a sharp puff came, it seemed to be like a distant gun. Strangely enough, Lucy did not wake, but she got up twice and dressed herself. Fortunately, each time I awoke in time and managed to undress her without waking her, and got her back to bed. It is a very strange thing, this sleepwalking for as soon as her will is thwarted in any physical way, her intention, if there be any, disappears. She yields herself almost exactly to the routine of her life. Early in the morning, we both got up and went down to the harbour to see if anything had happened in the night. There were very few people about, and though the sun was bright and the air clear and fresh, the big, grim-looking waves that seemed dark themselves because the foam that topped them was like snow forced themselves in through the narrow mouth of the harbour, like a bullying man going through a crowd. Somehow I felt glad that Jonathan was not on the sea last night, but on land. But is he on land or sea, and where is he, and how? I'm getting fearfully anxious about him. If only I knew what to do, and could do anything. 10th of August the funeral of the poor sea captain today was most touching. Every boat in the harbour seemed to be there. The coffin was carried by captains all the way from Tate Hill Pier up to the churchyard. Lucy came with me, and we went early to our old seat, whilst the quarterge of boats went up the river to the viaduct and came down again. We had a lovely view, and saw the procession nearly all the way, the poor fellow was laid to rest quite near our seat, so that we stood on it when the time came and we saw everything. Poor Lucy seemed much upset. She was restless and uneasy all the time, and I cannot but think that her dreaming at night is telling on her. She is quite odd in one thing. She will not admit to me that there is any cause for restlessness, or if there be, she does not understand it herself. There is an additional cause in that poor old Mr. Swales was found dead this morning on our seat, his neck broken. He had evidently, as the doctor said, fallen back in the seat in some sort of fright, for there was a look of fear and horror on his face that men said made them shudder. Poor dear old man. Perhaps he had seen death with his dying eyes. Lucy is so sweet and sensitive that she feels influences more acutely than other people do. Just now she was quite upset by a little thing which I did not much heed, though I am myself very fond of animals. One of the men who came up here often to look for the boats was followed by his dog. The dog is always with him. They are both quiet persons and I never saw the man angry nor heard the dog bark. During the service the dog would not come to its master, who was on the seat with us, but kept a few yards off, barking, howling. Its master spoke to it gently, and then harshly, and then angrily, but it would neither come nor cease to make a noise. It was in a sort of fury, with its eyes savage, its hairs bristling out like a cat's tail when Puss is on the warpath. Finally, the man, too, got angry and jumped down and kicked the dog. He took it by the scruff of the neck and half dragged and half threw it on a tombstone on which the seat is fixed. The moment it touched the stone, the poor thing became quiet and fell into a tremble. It did not try to get away, but crouched down, quivering, cowering, and was in such a pitiable state of terror that I tried without effect to comfort it. Lucy was full of pity too but she did not attempt to touch the dog but looked at it in an agonized sort of way I greatly fear that she is of too super sensitive a nature to go through the world without trouble she will be dreaming of this tonight I'm sure the whole agglomeration of things the ship steered into port by a dead man his attitude tied to the wheel with a crucifix and beads the touching funeral, the dog, now furious, now in terror. It will all afford material for her dreams. I think it will be best for her to go to bed, tired out physically. So I shall take her, for a long walk by the cliffs to Robin Hood's Bay and back. She ought not to have much inclination for sleepwalking, then. Chapter 8 Mina Murray's Journal Same day, Eleven o'clock, p.m. Oh, but I am tired. If it were not that I had made my diary a duty, I should not open it tonight. We had a lovely walk. Lucy, after a while, was in gay spirits, owing, I think, to some dear cows who came nosing towards us in a field close to the lighthouse and frightened the wits out of us. I believe we forgot everything except, of course, personal fear, and it seemed to wipe the slate clean and... Give us a fresh start. We had a capital severe tea at Robin Hood’s Bay in a sweet little old-fashioned inn with a bow window right over the seaweed-covered rocks of the Strand. I believe we should have shocked the new woman with our appetites. Men are more tolerant, bless them. Then we walked home with some, or rather many stoppages to rest, and our hearts full of constant dread of wild bulls. Lucy was really tired and we intended to creep off to bed as soon as we could. The young curate came in, however, and Mrs. Westenra asked him to stay for supper. Lucy and I had both a fight for it with the Dusty Miller. I know it was a hard fight on my part, and I am quite heroic. I think that someday the bishops must get together and see about breeding up a new class of curates who don't take supper, no matter how they may be pressed to, and who will know when girls are tired. Lucy is asleep and breathing softly. She has more colour in her cheeks than usual and looks so oh, so sweet. If Mr. Homewood fell in love with her seeing her only in the drawing room, I wonder what he would say if he saw her now. Some of the new women writers will someday start an idea that men and women should be allowed to see each other asleep before proposing or accepting. But I suppose the new woman won't condescend in future to accept. She will do the proposing herself. And a nice job she'll make of it too. There's some consolation in that. I'm so happy tonight because dear Lucy seems better. I really believe that she has turned the corner and that we are over her troubles with dreaming. I should be quite happy if I only knew if Jonathan... God bless and keep him. 11th of August, 3am. Diary again. No sleep now, so I may as well write. I am too agitated to sleep. We have had such an adventure, such an agonizing experience. I fell asleep as soon as I had closed my diary. Suddenly, I became broad awake and sat up with a horrible sense of fear upon me and some feeling of emptiness around me. The room was dark, so I could not see Lucy's bed. I stole across and felt for her. The bed was empty. I lit a match and found she was not in the room. The door was shut, but not locked as I had left it. I feared to wake her mother, who has been more than usually ill lately, so I threw on some clothes and I got ready to go look for her. As I was leaving the room, it struck me that the clothes that she wore might give me some clue to her dreaming intention. Dressing gown would mean house, dress outside. Dressing gown and dress were both in their places. Thank God, I said to myself, She cannot be far as she is only in her nightdress. I ran downstairs and looked in the sitting room, not there. Then I looked in all the other open rooms of the house with an ever-growing fear, chilling my heart. Finally, I came to the hall door and found it open. It was not wide open, but the catch of the lock had not caught. The people of the house are very careful to lock the door every night, so I feared that Lucy must have gone out as she was. There was no time to think of what might happen. A vague, overmastering fear obscured all details. I took a big heavy shawl and I ran out. The clock was striking one as I was in the Crescent. There was not a soul in sight. I ran along the north terrace, but I could see no sign of the white figure which I expected. At the edge of the west cliff above the pier, I looked across the harbor to east cliff. In the hope or fear I don't know which seeing lucy in our favorite seat there was a bright full moon with heavy black driving clouds which threw the whole scene into a fleeting diorama of light and shade as they sailed across for a moment or two i could see nothing as the shadow of a cloud obscured saint mary's church and all around it then as the cloud passed i could see the ruins of the abbey coming into view And as the edge of a narrow band of light, as sharp as a sword cut, moved along, the church and the churchyard became gradually visible. Whatever my expectation was, it was not disappointed. For there, on our favourite seat, the silver light of the moon struck a half-reclining figure, snowy white. What it was, whether man or beast, I could not tell. I did not wait to catch another glance. I flew down the steep steps to the pier and along by the fish market to the bridge, which was the only way to reach Eastcliff. The town seemed as dead, for not a soul did I see. I rejoiced that it was so, for I wanted no witness of poor Lucy's condition. The time and distance seemed endless. My knees trembled and my breath came laboured as I toiled up the endless steps to the abbey. I must have gone fast and "'yet it seemed to me as if my feet were weighted with lead, "'as though every joint in my body were rusty. "'When I got almost to the top, "'I could see the seat and the white figure, "'for now I was close enough to distinguish it "'even through the spells of shadow. "'There was undoubtedly something long and black, "'bending over the half-reclining white figure. "'I called in fright, "'Lucy, Lucy!' "'Something raised a head, and from where I was I could see a white face and red, gleaming eyes. Lucy did not answer, and I ran on to the entrance of the churchyard. As I entered, the church was between me and the seat, and for a minute or so I lost sight of her. When I came in view again, the cloud had passed. The moonlight struck so brilliantly that I could see Lucy, half reclining, with her head lying over the back of the seat. She was quite alone. There was no sign of any living thing about. When I bent over her, I could see that she was still asleep. Her lips were parted and she was breathing, not softly as usual with her, but long, heavy gasps as though striving to get her lungs full at every breath. As I came close, she put up her hand in her sleep and pulled the collar of her nightdress close around her throat. she did so, there came a little shudder through her as though she felt the cold. I flung the warm shawl over her and drew the edges tight around her neck. I dreaded lest she should get some deadly chill from the night air, unclad as she was. I feared to wake her all at once, so in order to have my hands free that I might help her, I fastened the shawl at her throat with a big safety pin. I must have been clumsy in my anxiety and pinched or pricked her with it, for by and by, when her breathing became quieter, she put her hand to her throat again and moaned. When I had carefully wrapped her up and put my shoes on her feet and began very gently to wake her, at first she did not respond. Gradually she became more and more uneasy in her sleep, moaning and sighing occasionally, At last, as time was passing fast and for many other reasons I wished to get her home at once, I shook her more forcibly, till finally she opened her eyes and awoke. She did not seem surprised to see me, as of course she did not realise all at once where she was. Lucy always wakes prettily, and even at such a time, when her body must have been chilled with cold, her mind appalled at waking unclad in a churchyard at night. She did not lose her grace. She trembled a little and clung to me. When I told her to come at once with me home, she rose without a word, with the obedience of a child. As we passed along, the gravel hurt my feet. Lucy noticed me wince. She stopped and wanted to insist upon my taking my shoes, but I would not. However, When we got to the pathway outside the churchyard, there was a puddle of water remaining from the storm. I daubed my feet with mud, using each foot in turn on the other, so that as we went home, no one, in any case, should we meet anyone, would notice my bare feet. Fortune favoured us, and we got home without meeting a soul. Once we saw a man who seemed not quite sober "'passing along a street in front of us, "'but we hid in a door until he had disappeared. "'My heart beat so loud all the time "'that sometimes I thought I should faint. "'I was filled with anxiety about Lucy, "'not only for her health, "'lest she should suffer from the exposure, "'but for her reputation, "'in case the story should get wind. "'When we got in and had washed our feet "'and said a prayer of thankfulness together, "'I tucked her into bed.' Before falling asleep, she asked, even implored me not to say a word to anyone, even her mother, about her sleepwalking adventure. I hesitated at first to promise, but on thinking of the state of her mother's health and how the knowledge of such a thing would fret her, thinking too how such a story might become distorted, nay, infallibly would, in case it should leak out, I thought it wiser to do so. I hope I did right. I've locked the door and the key is tied to my wrist. Perhaps I shall not be again disturbed. Lucy is sleeping soundly. The reflex of the dawn is high and far over the sea. Same day, noon. All goes well. Lucy slept till I woke her and seemed not to have even changed her side. The adventure of the night does not seem to have harmed her. On the contrary it's benefited her. She looks better this morning than she has for weeks. I was sorry to notice that my clumsiness with the safety pin hurt her. Indeed, it might have been serious, for the skin of her throat was pierced. I must have pinched up a piece of loose skin and transfixed it, for there are two little red points like pinpricks, and on the band of her nightdress a drop of blood. "'When I apologised and was concerned about it, she laughed and petted me, said she did not even feel it. "'Fortunately, it cannot leave a scar, as it is so tiny. "'Same day, night. "'We passed a happy day. "'The air was clear, the sun bright, and there was a cool breeze. "'We took our lunch to Mulgrave Woods. Mrs. Westenra driving by the road, "'and Lucy and I walking by the cliff path and joining her at the gate.' I felt a little sad myself, for I could not feel how absolutely happy I would be had Jonathan been with me. But there, I must only be patient. In the evening, we strolled in the casino terrace and heard some good music and went to bed early. Lucy seems more restful than she has been for some time, and fell asleep at once. I shall lock the door and secure the key the same as before. I do not expect any trouble tonight. 12th of August. My expectations were wrong. For twice during the night I was wakened by Lucy trying to get out. She seemed even in her sleep to be a little impatient at finding the door shut and went back to bed under a sort of protest. I woke with the dawn and heard the birds chirping outside the window. Lucy woke too and I was glad to see it was even better than on the previous morning. All her old gaiety of manner seemed to have come back. "'and she came and snuggled in beside me and told me all about Arthur. "'I told her how anxious I was about Jonathan, and she tried to comfort me. "'She succeeded somewhat, for though sympathy can't alter facts, "'it can help to make them more bearable. Thirteenth of August, another quiet day, "'and to bed with the key on my wrist as before. "'Again, I awoke in the night and found Lucy sitting up in bed, still asleep.' pointing to the window. I got up quietly and pulling aside the blind, I looked out. It was a brilliant moonlight and the soft effect of the light over the sea and sky merged together in one great silent mystery. It was beautiful beyond words. Between me and the moonlight flitted a great bat, coming and going in great whirling circles. Once or twice it came quite close, but was I suppose frightened at seeing me and flitted away across the harbour towards the abbey. When I came back from the window Lucy had lain down again and was sleeping peacefully. She did not stir again all night. 14th of August. On the east cliff reading and writing all day. Lucy seems to have become as much in love with this spot as I am, It's hard to get her away from it when it's time to come home for lunch or tea or dinner. This afternoon she made a funny remark. We were coming home for dinner and had come to the top of the steps up from the west pier and stopped to look at the view as we generally do. The setting sun, low down in the sky, was just dropping behind Kettleness. The red light was thrown over onto the east cliff and the old abbey. It seemed to bathe everything in a beautiful rosy glow. We were silent for a while, and suddenly Lucy murmured, as if to herself. His red eyes again, they're just the same. It was such an odd expression, it quite startled me. I slewed round a little as to see Lucy well without seeming to stare at her and saw she was in a half-dreamy state with an odd look on her face. I said nothing, but I followed her eyes. She appeared to be looking over at our own seat, whereon was a dark figure, sat alone. I was a little startled myself, for it seemed for an instant as if the stranger had great eyes like burning flames, but a second look dispelled the illusion. The red sunlight was shining on the windows of St. Mary's Church behind our seat, and as the sun dipped, there was just sufficient change in the refraction and reflection to make it appear as if the light had moved. I called Lucy's attention to the peculiar effect, and she became herself with a start, but she looked sad all the same. It may have been that she was thinking of that terrible night up there. We never refer to it, so I said nothing and we went home to dinner. Lucy had a headache and went early to bed. I saw her asleep, and I went out for a little stroll myself. I walked along the cliffs to the westward and was full of sweet sadness, for I was thinking of Jonathan. When coming home, it was then full bright moonlight, so bright that though the front of our part of the crescent was in shadow, everything could be well seen. I threw a glance up at our window and I saw Lucy's head leaning out. I thought perhaps she was looking out for me, so I opened my handkerchief and waved it. She did not notice or make any movement whatever. Just then, the moonlight crept round an angle of the building. The light fell on the window. There, distinctly, was Lucy with her head lying up against the side of the window sill and her eyes shut. She was fast asleep, and by her, seated on the windowsill, was something that looked like a good-sized bird. I was afraid that she might get a chill, so I ran upstairs, but as I came into the room she was moving back to her bed, fast asleep and breathing heavily. She was holding her hand to her throat, as though to protect it from the cold. I did not wake her, but tucked her up warmly. I've taken care that the door is locked and the window securely fastened. She looks so sweet as she sleeps, but she is paler than is her wont, and there is a drawn, haggard look under her eyes which I do not like. I fear she's fretting about something. I wish I could find out what it is. 15th of August. Rose later than usual. Lucy was languid and tired and slept on after we had been called. We had a happy surprise at breakfast. Arthur's father is better and wants the marriage to come off soon. Lucy is full of quiet joy and her mother is glad and sorry at once. Later on in the day, she told me the cause. She is grieved to lose Lucy as her very own, but she is rejoiced that she is soon to have someone to protect her. Poor dear, sweet lady. She confided to me that she's got her death warrant. She's not told Lucy and made me promise secrecy. Her doctor told her that within a few months at most she must die. Her heart is weakening. At any time, even now, a sudden shock would be almost sure to kill her. We were wise to keep from her the affair of the dreadful night of Lucy's sleepwalking. 17th of August... No diary for two whole days. I have not had the heart to write. Some sort of shadowy pall seems to be coming over our happiness. No news from Jonathan, and Lucy seems to be growing weaker whilst her mother's hours are numbering to a close. I do not understand Lucy's fading away as she is doing. She eats well and sleeps well and enjoys the fresh air, but all the time the roses in her cheeks are fading. She gets weaker and more languid day by day. At night, I hear her gasping as if for air. I keep the key of our door always fastened to my wrist at night. But she gets up and walks about the room, sits at the open window. Last night, I found her leaning out when I woke up. When I tried to wake her, I could not. She was in a faint. When I managed to restore her, she was as weak as water and cried silently, between long painful struggles for breath. When I asked her how she came to be at the window she shook her head and turned away. I trust her feeling ill may not be from that unlucky prick of the safety pin. I looked at her throat just now as she lay asleep and the tiny wounds have not healed. They are still open and if anything larger than before. The edges of them are faintly white. They're like little white dots with red centres. Unless they heal within a day or two, I shall insist on the doctor seeing about them. Letter Samuel F. Billington and Son Solicitors Whitby To Messrs. Carter, Patterson & Co. London Dear Sirs, Herewith please receive invoice of goods sent by Great Northern Railway. Same are to be delivered at Carfax near Purfleet immediately on receipt at Goods Station, Kings Cross. The house is at present empty, but enclosed please find keys, all of which are labelled. You will please deposit the boxes fifty in number, which form the consignment in the partially ruined building, forming part of the house and marked A on the rough diagram enclosed. Your agent will easily recognise the locality as it is the ancient chapel of the mansion. The goods leave by train at 9.30 tonight, and they will be due at King's Cross at 4.30 tomorrow afternoon. As our client wishes the delivery made as soon as possible, we shall be obliged by your having teams ready at King's Cross at the time named, and forthwith conveying the goods to destination. In order to obviate any delays possible through any routine requirements as to payment in your departments, we enclose cheque herewith for £10, receipt of which please acknowledge. Should the charge be less than this amount, you can return the balance. If greater, we shall at once send cheque for difference on hearing from you. You are to leave the keys on coming away in the main hall of the house, where the proprietor may get them on his entering the house by means of his duplicate key. Pray, do not take us as exceeding the bounds of business courtesy in pressing you in all the ways to use the utmost expedition. We are, dear sirs, faithfully yours, Samuel F. Billington and son. Letter Carter, Patterson and Co., London, to Billington and Son, Whitby. Dear sirs, we beg to acknowledge 10 pounds received and to return check 1 pound 17. Amount of overplus, as shown in receipted account herewith. Goods are delivered in exact accordance with instructions, and keys left in parcel in Main Hall as directed. We are, dear sirs, yours respectfully, Carter, Patterson and Kerr. Mina Murray's journal, 18th of August. I'm happy today, and I write sitting on the seat in the churchyard. Lucy is ever so much better Last night she slept well all night and did not disturb me once. The roses seem coming back already to her cheeks, though she is still sadly pale and one-looking. If she were in any way anemic, I could understand it, but she's not. She is in gay spirits and full of life and cheerfulness. All the morbid reticence seems to have passed from her, and she has just reminded me as if I needed any reminding of that night, and that it was here. Here on this very seat that I found her asleep. As she told me, she tapped playfully with the heel of her boot on the stone slab, and said, My poor little feet didn't make much noise then. I dare say poor old Mr. Swales would have told me that it was because I didn't want to wake up Geordie. As she was in such communicative humour, I asked her if she had dreamed at all that night. Before she answered that sweet, puckered look came into her forehead, which Arthur, I call him Arthur from her habit, says he loves, and indeed, I don't wonder that he does. Then she went on in a half-dreaming kind of way, as if trying to recall it to herself. I didn't quite dream, but it all seemed to be real. I only wanted to be here, in this spot. I don't know why, for I was afraid of something. I don't know what. I remember though, I suppose I was asleep, passing through the streets and over the bridge. A fish leapt as I went by and I leaned over to look at it. I heard a lot of dogs howling. The whole town seemed as if it must be full of dogs and all howling at once. I went up the steps. Then I had a vague memory of something long and dark with red eyes, just as we saw in the sunset. Something very sweet and very bitter all around me at once. And then I seemed sinking into deep green water. There was a singing in my ears, as I've heard there is, to drowning men. And everything seemed to be passing away from me. My soul seemed to go out from my body and float about the air. I seemed to remember that once the west lighthouse was right under me, Then there was a sort of agonizing feeling, as if I were in an earthquake. Then I came back, and I found you shaking my body. I saw you do it before I felt you. Then she began to laugh. It seemed a little uncanny to me, and I listened to her breathlessly. I did not quite like it, and thought it better not to keep her mind on the subject. So we drifted to other subjects, and Lucy was like her old self again. When we got home... The fresh breeze had braced her up. Her pale cheeks were really more rosy. Her mother rejoiced when she saw her, and we all spent a very happy evening together. 19th of August. Joy, 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 although not all joy, but at last news of Jonathan. The dear fellow has been ill. That is why he did not write. I am not afraid to think it or say it now that I know. Mr. Hawkins sent me on the letter and wrote himself, oh so kindly. I'm to leave in the morning and go over to Jonathan to help to nurse him if necessary and bring him home. Mr. Hawkins says it would not be a bad thing if we were to be married out there. I've cried over the good sister's letter till I can feel it wet against my bosom where it lies. It is of Jonathan and must be next to my heart, for he is in my heart.' My journey is all mapped out and my luggage ready. I'm only taking one change of dress. Lucy will bring my trunk to London and keep it till I send for it. For it may be that I must write no more. I must keep it to say to Jonathan, my husband, The letter that he has seen and touched must comfort me till we meet. The letter from Sister Agatha, Hospital of St. Joseph, Budapest. To Miss Wilhelmina Murray. Dear Madam, I write by desire of Mr. Jonathan Harker, who is himself not strong enough to write, though progressing well, thanks to God and St. Joseph and St. Mary. He has been under our care for nearly six weeks, suffering from a violent brain fever. He wishes me to convey his love, and to say that by this post I write for him to Mr. Peter Hawkins, Exeter, to say with his dutiful respects that he is sorry for his delay and that all of his work is completed. He'll require some few weeks' rest in our sanatorium in the hills, but will then return. He wishes me to say that he has not sufficient money with him, and that he would like to pay for his staying here, so that others who need shall not be wanting for help. Believe me, yours with sympathy and all blessings, Sister Agatha. P.S. My patient being asleep, I open this to let you know something more he has told me all about you, and that you are shortly to be his wife. All blessings to you both. He has had some fearful shock, so says our doctor, and in his delirium his ravings have been dreadful of wolves and poison, blood, ghosts and demons, I fear to say of what. Be careful with him always, that there may be nothing to excite him of this kind for a long time to come. The traces of such an illness as his do not lightly die away. We should have written long ago, but we knew nothing of his friends, and there was on him nothing that any could understand. He came in the train from Klausenburg, and the guard was told by the stationmaster there that he rushed into the station shouting for a ticket for home. Seeing from his violent demeanour that he was English, they gave him a ticket for the furthest station on the way thither that the train reached. Be assured he is well cared for. He has won all hearts by his sweetness and gentleness." He is truly getting on well. I have no doubt he will be in a few weeks all of himself again, but be careful of him for safety's sake. There are, I pray, God and St. Joseph and St. Mary. Many, many happy years for you both. Dr. Seward's Diary, 19th of August Strange and sudden change in Renfield last night. About eight o'clock he began to get excited and sniff about as a dog does when setting. The attendant was struck by his manner, and, knowing my interest in him, encouraged him to talk. He's usually respectful to the attendant and at times servile, but tonight the man tells me he was quite haughty. Would not condescend to talk with him at all. All he would say was, I don't want to talk to you. You don't count now. The master is at hand. The attendant thinks it is some form of religious mania which has seized him. If so, we must look out for schools, for a strong man with homicidal and religious mania at once might be dangerous. The combination is a dreadful one. At nine o'clock I visited him myself. His attitude to me was the same as that to the attendant. In his sublime self-feeling, the difference between myself and attendant seemed to him as nothing. It looks like religious mania and he will soon think that he himself is god. These infinitesimal distinctions between man and man are too paltry for an omnipotent being, how these madmen give themselves away. The real god taketh heed lest a sparrow fall, but the god created from human vanity sees no difference between an eagle and a sparrow, if men only knew for half an hour or more, Renfield kept getting excited in greater and greater degree. I did not pretend to be watching him, but I kept strict observation all the same. All at once that shifty look came into his eyes which you always see when a madman has seized an idea, and with it the shifty movement of the head and back which asylum attendants come to know so well. He became quite quiet and sat on the edge of his bed resignedly, "'looked into space with lacklustre eyes. "'I thought I would find out if his apathy were real or only assumed, "'and I tried to lead him to talk of his pets, "'a theme which had never failed to excite his attention. "'At first he made no reply, but at length said testily, "'Bother them all. I don't care a pin about them.' "'What?' I said you don't mean to tell me you don't care about spiders. Spiders at present are his hobby. His notebook is filling up with columns of small figures. To this he answered enigmatically, the bride maidens rejoice the eyes that wait the coming of the bride. But when the bride draweth nigh, then the maidens shine not to the eyes that are filled. He would not explain himself, but remained obstinately seated on the bed all the time I remained with him. I'm weary tonight, and low in spirits. I cannot but think of Lucy, how different things might have been. If I don't sleep at once, the modern Morpheus, I must be careful not to let it grow into a habit. No, I shall take none tonight. I've thought of Lucy. I shall not dishonour her by mixing the two, if need be. Tonight shall be sleepless.' Later. Glad I made the resolution, gladder that I kept to it. I had lain tossing about and had heard the clock strike only twice when the night watchman came to me, sent up from the ward to say that Renfield had escaped. I threw on my clothes and ran down at once. My patient is too dangerous a person to be roaming about. Those ideas of his might work out dangerously with strangers. The attendant was waiting for me. He said he had seen him not ten minutes before, seemingly asleep in his bed when he had looked through the observation trap in the door. His attention was called by the sound of the window being wrenched out. He ran back and saw his feet disappear through the window and had at once sent up for me. He was only in his night gear and could not be far off. The attendant thought it would be more useful to watch where he should go than to follow him, as he might lose sight of him whilst getting out of the building by the door. He is a bulky man and couldn't get through the window. I am thin, so with his aid I got out, but feet foremost, and as we were only a few feet above the ground, I landed unhurt. The attendant told me the patient had gone to the left and taken a straight line. I ran as quickly as I could. As I got through the belt of trees, I saw a white figure scale a high wall which separates our grounds from those of a deserted house. I ran back at once, told the watchman to get three or four men immediately and follow me into the grounds of Carfax, in case our friend might be dangerous. I got a ladder myself, and crossing the wall, I dropped down on the other side. I could see Renfield's figure just disappearing behind the angle of the house. I ran after him. I was afraid to go near enough to hear what he was saying, lest I might frighten him and he should run off. Chasing an errant swarm of bees is nothing to following a naked lunatic when the fit of escaping is upon him. After a few minutes, however, I could see that he did not take note of anything around him, and so I ventured to draw nearer to him. The more so as my men had now crossed the wall and were closing him in. I heard him say, "'I am here to do your bidding, Master. "'I am your slave. "'You will reward me, for I shall be faithful. "'I have worshipped you long and afar off. "'Now that you are near, I await your commands. "'You will not pass me by, you dear Master, "'in your distribution of good things.' "'He is a selfish old beggar anyhow.' He thinks of the loaves and fishes even when he believes he is in a real presence. His manias make for a startling combination. When we closed in on him, he fought like a tiger. He is immensely strong, but he was more like a wild beast than a man. I never saw a lunatic in such a rage before, and I hope I shall not again. It is a mercy we have found out his strength and his danger in good time. With strength and determination like his, he might have done wild work before he was caged. He is safe now at any rate. Jack Shepherd himself couldn't get free from the straight waistcoat that keeps him restrained, and he's chained to the wall in the padded room. His cries are at times awful, but the silences that follow are more deadly still for he means murder in every turn and movement. Just now he spoke coherent words for the first time. I shall be patient, Master. It is coming, coming, coming. So I took the hint and came to. I was too excited to sleep, but this diary has quieted me, and I feel I shall get some sleep tonight. Chapter 9 Letter from Mina Harker to Lucy Westenra, Budapest, 24th of August. My dearest Lucy, I know you will be anxious to hear all that has happened since we parted at the railway station at Whitby. Well, my dear, I got to Hull all right and I caught the boat to Hamburg and then the train on here, and I feel that I can hardly recall anything of the journey, except that I knew I was coming to Jonathan. And that as I should have to do some nursing, I had better get all the sleep that I could. I found my dear one, oh so thin and pale and weak-looking. All the resolution has gone out of his dear eyes. That quiet dignity which I told you was in his face has vanished. He is only a wreck of himself. He does not remember anything that has happened to him for a long time past. At least he wants me to believe so, and "'I shall never ask. "'He has had some terrible shock, "'and I fear it might tax his poor brain "'if he were to try and recall it. "'Sister Agatha, who is a good creature and a born nurse, "'tells me that he raved of dreadful things "'whilst he was off his head. "'I wanted her to tell me what they were, "'but she would only cross herself "'and say that she would never tell, "'that the ravings of the sick "'were the secrets of God.' and that if a nurse through her vocation should hear them, she should respect her trust. She is a sweet, good soul. And the next day, when she saw that I was troubled, she opened up the subject again. And after saying that she could never mention what my poor dear raved about, she added, I can tell you this much, my dear, that it was not about anything which he has done wrong himself, and you as his wife-to-be have no cause to be concerned. "'He has not forgotten you, or what he owes to you. "'His fear was of great and terrible things which no mortal can treat of. "'I do believe the dear soul thought I might be jealous, "'lest my poor dear should have fallen in love with any other girl. "'The idea of my being jealous about Jonathan, "'and yet my dear let me whisper that I felt a thrill of joy through me "'when I knew that no other woman was a cause of the trouble.' I am now sitting by his bedside, where I can see his face while he sleeps. He is waking. When he woke, he asked me for his coat as he wanted to get something from his pocket. I asked Sister Agatha and she brought all his things. I saw that amongst them was his notebook. I was going to ask him to let me look at it, for I knew that I might find some clue to his trouble. I suppose he must have seen the wish in my eyes for... He sent me over to the window, saying he wanted to be quite alone for a moment. He called me back, and when I came, he had his hand over the notebook and said to me very solemnly, Wilhelmina. I knew then that he was in deadly earnest, for he has never called me by that name since he asked me to marry him. You know, my dear, my ideas of the trust between husband and wife. There should be no secret, no concealment. I have had a great shock, and when I try to think of what it is, I feel my head spin round. I do not know if it was all real or the dreaming of a madman. You know I have had brain fever, and that is to be mad. The the secret is here, and I do not want to know it. I, I want to take up my life here with our marriage. For, my dear, we had decided to be married as soon as formalities are complete. Are you willing, Wilhelmina, to share my ignorance? Here is the book. Take it, keep it, read it if you will, but never let me know. Unless, indeed, some solemn duty should come upon me to go back to the bitter hours, asleep or awake, sane or mad, recorded here. He fell back, exhausted and I put the book under his pillow and I kissed him. I have asked Sister Agatha to beg the superior to let our wedding be this afternoon. I am waiting for her reply. She has come and told me that the chaplain of the English Mission Church has been sent for. We are to be married in an hour, or as so soon after as Jonathan awakes. Lucy, the time has come and gone. I feel... Very solemn, but very, very happy. Jonathan woke a little after the hour, and all was ready. He sat up in bed, propped up with pillows. He answered his, I will, firmly and strongly. I could hardly speak. My heart was so full. Even those words seemed to choke me. The dear sisters were so kind. Please, God, I shall never, never forget them, nor the grave and sweet responsibilities that I have taken upon me. I must tell you of my wedding present when the chaplain and the sisters left me alone with my husband oh Lucy, it's the first time I've ever written the words my husband left me alone with my husband I took the book from under his pillow I wrapped it up in white paper I tied it with a little bit of pale blue ribbon which was round my neck I sealed it over the knot with sealing wax and for the seal I used my wedding ring I kissed it and I showed it to my husband and I told him that I would keep it so and that it would be an outward and visible sign for us all our lives that we trusted each other that I would never open it unless it were for his own dear sake or for the sake of some stern duty he took my hand in his and oh Lucy it was the first time that he took his wife's hand and said that it was the dearest thing in all the wide world that he would go through all the past again to win it if need be the poor dear meant to have said a part of the past but he cannot think of time yet and I shall not wonder if at first he mixes up not only the month but the year well my dear what could I say I could only tell him that I was the happiest woman in the whole world that I had nothing to give him except myself my life and my trust and that with these went my love and my duty for all the days of my life and my dear when he kissed me and drew me to him with his poor weak hands it was like a very solemn pledge between us Lucy dear do you know why I tell you all this it is not only because it is all sweet to me but because you have been and are very dear to me It was my privilege to be your friend and guide you when you came from the schoolroom to prepare for the world of life. I want you to see now, and with the eyes of a very happy wife, where the duty has led me, so that in your own married life you too may be all happy as I am. My dear, please almighty God, your life be all that it promises. A long day of sunshine. With no harsh wind, with no forgetting duty, no distrust. I must not wish you no pain, for that can never be. But I do hope you will be always as happy as I am now. Goodbye, my dear. I shall post this at once and perhaps write to you very soon again. I must stop, for Jonathan is waking. I must attend to my husband. Your ever-loving... Mina Harker. Letter from Lucy Westenra to Mina Harker. Whitby, 30th of August. My dearest Mina, oceans of love and millions of kisses. May you soon be in your own home with your husband. I wish you could be coming home soon enough to stay with us here. The strong air would soon restore Jonathan. It's quite restored me. I have an appetite like a cormorant, full of life, and I sleep well. You'll be glad to know that I've quite given up walking in my sleep. I think I've not stirred out of my bed for a week. That is, when I once got into it at night. Arthur says I'm getting fat. By the way, I forgot to tell you that Arthur is here. We have such walks and drives and rides and rowing and tennis and fishing together. I love him more than ever. He tells me that he loves me more, but I doubt that at first, he told me that he couldn't love me more than he did then. But this is nonsense. There he is calling to me, so no more just at present from your loving, Lucy. P.S. Mother sends her love. She seems better, poor dear. P.P.S. We are to be married on the 28th of September. Dr. Seward's Diary, 20th of August. The case of Renfield grows even more interesting. He is now so far quieted that there are spells of cessation from his passion. For the first week after his attack, he was perpetually violent. Then one night, just as the moon rose, he grew quiet and kept murmuring to himself, now I can wait, now I can wait. The attendant came to tell me, so I ran down at once to have a look at him. He was still in his straight waistcoat in a padded room, but the suffused look had gone from his face. His eyes had something of their old pleading, I might almost say cringing softness. I was satisfied with his present condition and directed for him to be relieved. The attendants hesitated, but finally carried out my wishes without protest. It was a strange thing that the patient had humour enough to see their distrust. For coming close to me, he said in a whisper, They think I could hurt you fancy me hurting you, the fools. It was soothing, somehow, to the feelings to find myself dissociated even in the mind of this poor madman from the others. But all the same, I do not follow his thought. Am I to take it that I have anything in common with him, so that we are, as it were, to stand together? Or is he to gain from me some good so stupendous that my well-being is needful to him? I must find out later on. Tonight he will not speak. Even the offer of a kitten or a full grown cat will not tempt him. He will only say, I don't take any stock in cats. I've more to think of now. And I can wait. I can wait. After a while I left him. The attendant tells me he was quiet until just before dawn. Then he began to get uneasy and at length violent till at last he fell into a paroxysm, which exhausted him so that he swooned into a sort of coma. Three nights as the same thing happened, violent all day and quiet from moonrise to sunrise. I wish I could get some clue to the cause. It would almost seem as if there were some influence which came and went. Happy thought we shall tonight play sane wits against mad ones. He escaped before without our help. Tonight he shall escape with it. We shall give him a chance, and have the men ready to follow, in case they are required. 23rd of August The unexpected always happens. How well Disraeli knew life. Our bird, when he found the cage open, would not fly. So all our subtle arrangements were for naught. At any rate, we've proved one thing. The spells of quietness last a reasonable time. We shall in future be able to ease his bonds for a few hours each day. I have given orders to the night attendant merely to shut him in the padded room, when once he is quiet until an hour before sunrise. The poor soul's body will enjoy the relief even if his mind cannot appreciate it. The unexpected again. I am called. The patient has once more escaped. Later... Another night adventure, Renfield artfully waited until the attendant was entering the room to inspect, then dashed out past him and flew down the passage. I sent word for attendants to follow. Again he went into the grounds of the deserted house. We found him in the same place pressed against the old chapel door. When he saw me he became furious, and had not the attendant seized him in time he would have tried to kill me. As we were holding him, a strange thing happened. He suddenly redoubled his efforts and then as suddenly grew calm. I looked round instinctively, but could see nothing. I caught the patient's eye and followed it, but could trace nothing as it looked into a moonlit sky except for a big bat. It was flapping its silent and ghostly way to the west. Bats usually wheel and flit about, but... This one seemed to go straight on, as if it knew where it was bound for and had some intention of its own. The patient grew calmer every instant and presently said, You needn't tie me. I shall go quietly. Without trouble, we came back to the house. I feel there is something ominous in his calm and shall not forget this night. Lucy Westenra's Diary, 24th of August. I must imitate Mina and keep writing things down then we can have long talks when we do meet I wonder when it'll be I wish you were here with me again I feel so unhappy last night I seemed to be dreaming again just as I was at Whitby perhaps it is the change of air or getting home again it's all dark and horrid for me I can remember nothing I'm full of vague fear and I feel weak and worn out When Arthur came to lunch, he looked quite grieved when he saw me, and I hadn't the spirit to try to be cheerful. I wonder if I could sleep in Mother's room tonight. I shall make an excuse and try. 25th of August. Another bad night. Mother did not seem to take to my proposal. She seems not too well herself, and doubtless she fears to worry me. I tried to keep awake and I succeeded for a while, but when the clock struck twelve it waked me from a doze so I must have been falling asleep there was a sort of scratching or flapping at the window but I did not mind it and as I remember no more I suppose I must then have fallen asleep more bad dreams I wish I could remember them this morning I am horribly weak my face is ghastly pale and my throat pains me It must be something wrong with my lungs, for I don't seem ever to get air enough. I shall try to cheer up when Arthur comes, or else I know he'll be miserable to see me. Letter from Arthur Homewood to Dr. Seward My dear Jack, I want you to do me a favour. Lucy is ill. That is, she has no special disease, but she looks awful and is getting worse every day. I've asked her if there's any cause. I do not dare to ask her mother, for to disturb the poor lady's mind about her daughter in her present state of health would be fatal. Mrs. Westenra has confided to me that her doom is spoken. Disease of the heart, though poor Lucy does not know it yet. I'm sure there is something preying on my dear girl's mind. I'm almost distracted when I think of her. To look at her gives me a pang. I told her I should ask you to see her, and "'Though she demurred at first, I know why, old fellow, she finally consented. "'It'll be a painful task for you, I know, old friend, but it's for her sake. "'I must not hesitate to ask or you to act. "'You are to come to lunch at Hillingham tomorrow, two o'clock, "'so as not to arouse any suspicion in Mrs. Westenra. "'And after lunch, Lucy will take an opportunity of being alone with you. "'I shall come in for tea, and we can go away together.' I'm filled with anxiety and want to consult with you alone as soon as I can after you've seen her. Do not fail, Arthur. Telegram. Arthur Holmwood to Seward. I am summoned to see my father, who is worse. I'm writing. Write me fully by tonight, post to ring. Wire me if necessary. Letter from Dr. Seward to Arthur Holmwood. My dear old fellow... With regard to Miss Westenra's health, I hasten to let you know at once that in my opinion there is not any functional disturbance or any malady that I know of. At the same time, I am not by any means satisfied with her appearance. She is woefully different from what she was when I saw her last. Of course, you must bear in mind that I did not have full opportunity of examination such as I should wish. Our very friendship makes a little difficulty which... Not even medical science or custom can bridge over. I'd better tell you exactly what happened and leave you to draw in a measure your own conclusions. I shall then say what I have done and propose doing. I found Miss Westenra in seemingly gay spirits. Her mother was present, and in a few seconds I made up my mind that she was trying all that she knew to mislead her mother to prevent her from being anxious. I have no doubt that she guesses if she does not know what need of caution there is. We lunched alone, and as we all exerted ourselves to be cheerful, we got some kind of reward for our labours, some real cheerfulness amongst us. Then Mrs Westenra went to lie down, and Lucy was left with me. We went into her boudoir. Until we got there, her gaiety remained, for all the servants were coming and going. As soon as the door was closed, however, the mask fell from her face. She sank down into a chair with a great sigh, hid her eyes with her hand, and when I saw that her high spirits had failed, I at once took advantage of her reaction to make a diagnosis. She said to me very sweetly, I cannot tell you how I loathe talking about myself. I reminded her that a doctor's confidence was sacred, but that you were grievously anxious about her. She caught on to my meaning at once, and settled that matter in a word. Tell Arthur everything you choose. I do not care for myself, but all for him, so I am quite free. I could easily see that she is somewhat bloodless, but I could not see the usual anemic signs By chance, I was actually able to test the quality of her blood, for in opening a window which was stiff, a cord gave way, and she cut her hand slightly with broken glass. It was a slight matter in itself, but it gave me an evident chance, and I secured a few drops of the blood and have analysed them. The qualitative analysis gives a quite normal condition, and shows, as I should infer, in itself a vigorous state of health. In other physical matters, I was quite satisfied there's no need for anxiety. But as there must be a cause somewhere, I've come to the conclusion that it must be something mental. She complains of difficulty breathing satisfactorily at times, of heavy lethargic sleep with dreams that frighten her, but regarding which she can remember nothing. She says that as a child she used to walk in her sleep, that when in Whitby the habit came back, and that once she walked out in the night and went to Eastcliff where Miss Murray found her, but she assures me that of late the habit has not returned. I am in doubt, and so have done the best thing that I know of, written to my old friend and master, Professor Van Helsing of Amsterdam, who knows as much about obscure diseases as anyone in the world. I've asked him to come over, and As you told me that all things were to be at your charge, I have mentioned to him who you are and your relation to Miss Westenra. This, my dear fellow, is in obedience to your wishes, for I am only too proud and happy to do anything that I can for her. Van Helsing would, I know, do anything for me for a personal reason, so no matter on what ground he comes, we must accept his wishes. He is a seemingly arbitrary man, but This is because he knows what he is talking about better than anyone else. He is a philosopher and a metaphysician, and one of the most advanced scientists of his day. He has, I believe, an absolutely open mind. This, with an iron nerve, a temper of the icebrook, and an indomitable resolution, self-command and toleration exalted from virtue to blessings, and the kindliest and truest heart that beats. These form his equipment for the noble work that he is doing for mankind, both in theory and in practice, for his views are as wide as his all-embracing sympathy. I tell you these facts that you may know why I have such confidence in him. I have asked for him to come at once. I shall see Miss Westenra tomorrow again. She's to meet me at the stores, so that I may not alarm her mother by too early a repetition of my call. Yours always, John Seward. And that is where we close the book tonight on Dracula.